So today I want to look at some of these, uh, a few examples that kind of where we see hints of like Leviticus and Exodus and uh, sanctuary language, tent of meeting language. Um, and hopefully that will give you kind of this like background or base level so that when you begin to read the New Testament or you're reading the scripture on your own, this stuff will maybe like begin to pop out at you as well. Um, because I believe if you can begin to see this, when you hear things like the temple and the, the sanctuary and and how that was all a reflection of creation, when you begin to see that in the New Testament, man, it takes on like these whole new like layer of meaning and, and it's just good stuff, good stuff. So we're going to start with a couple very obvious ones and then uh, kind of talk about the correlation. And then we're going to get to the end of the sermon where we're going to do this fun thing where I'm going to give you a bunch of information and then ask a few questions and then not give you any answers. I'm, I'm really excited for it. It's going to be good. Okay, so let's look at a few obvious things. Uh, let's start with this. John 1, 1, the way Jesus introduces us, uh, the way John introduces us to Jesus. This is fascinating. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Skip down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you may have read this. You may be familiar with this passage, John 1.1. 1, 1. Um, but this passage is just dripping in Levitical temple sanctuary type of language. Uh, first, you have this idea, just this general thought of um, you have this intangible thing, the word, the word that was with God, and it's making this movement towards like the earth. It's moving towards the people. Uh, you have the word dwelling among us, right? So there's this intangible thing that now becomes up close and personal. Uh, what's really interesting about all this is that this word here, the word became flesh and made his dwelling. As this intangible thing is moving among the people, this word right here is quite brilliant because the word dwelling uh, in the Greek word is skeno, skeneo. So it's very close. It's very close to that. Um, but the word, it, it, its meaning is to tabernacle. And what you see is that this word dwelling is a picture of what was happening in Exodus chapter 40 when the presence of God came and dwelt among the people. So what, what John is doing here is making this correlation between Jesus, the word becoming flesh, and then the presence of God showing up in the tabernacle. Right? He's like, yeah, 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 this is that thing. You know how like the presence of God showed up and dwelt among the people? That's kind of the same thing that's happening here, except this time it's not a tent. It's like a human. It's like the flesh and blood that God has already created. Now, there's also this little bit here about the glory of, of God, which is, um, we see here, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Exodus, it looks like this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Right? So he's making all these connections. And what's even crazier is not only do you have ties to Exodus, you have ties to Leviticus because of what's about to happen, but you also have ties to creation because that whole passage, John 1, begins in the beginning, like the Bible starts, in the beginning, God created. And so this whole passage, the way that John introduces us to Jesus is by connecting us to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, by connecting us to the temple, by connecting us to the presence of God and how he interacted with Israel to how Jesus is interacting with us, which is really Really interesting. At least uh, I think it is. I don't know. Maybe you guys are like, oh, whatever. But 
I think it's cool. Uh, here's another one, fairly obvious one. Again, all this stuff, in order for us to understand what Jesus is doing, in order for us to have a deeper understanding of the New Testament, we have to understand what comes before it. And we have to understand there are all these connections that we have to keep in mind as we're sorting through this stuff. Here's another one that may seem fairly obvious. Uh, Paul is talking to the church in Rome. He's writing to the church in Rome, and he says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So in view of God's mercy, because of God's mercy, essentially saying because of Jesus, you don't have to like offer these animals anymore. You don't have to do that. We're doing something different. And if you remember, in case you weren't here, a couple of weeks ago we talked about the, sacrifice, the sacrifices and how there were five sacrifices. And what we learned is the sacrifices weren't necessarily what we normally think of the sacrifices. Like the first, there's five of them. The first three were voluntary or what they call free will offerings. And they were all about here's how to express gratitude. The, fir the first thing that God teaches the people when he brings them out of slavery, out of, out of Egypt, is here's how to express gratitude. If your picture of God does not match up with that picture of God, then something needs to be adjusted. The other two are, here's how to mend relationships. So the first three are voluntary, about expressing joy and gratitude. The last two were about um, mending relationships, and they were mandatory. Mending relationships with each other, mending relationships with God. So you have all these really, really interesting connections. Now, um, the way things used to work was, hey, here you come to the temple, you go through this ritual, you offer this gift of gratitude, this gift of joy, you offer this gift uh, of like a formal apology. By the time you get to Paul and, and this in Romans, what we see is that essentially the whole world is God's temple. And so when Paul is talking about the living sacrifice, he's drawing on a very, this ancient ritual that they would have been very familiar with. They know the sacrificial system. That's what they're used to. Um, you used to offer an animal as this way to express joy, as a way to express gratitude to the divine who has liberated you away from, who's liberated you from slavery. So Paul's like, yeah, you don't have to do that anymore because there's something new that's happening in this guy named Jesus. And, and in this whole like new covenant thing we have going on, you offer your body as a living sacrifice. You now become the offering, the token of gratitude to the divine, right? Which is actually quite beautiful and quite brilliant. And it actually makes you wonder like why so many Christians are like giant sticks in the mud. Is it because, yeah, is it because we haven't fully understood what it means to live the entirety of our being with joy and gratitude? If I understood my life as an offering of gratitude, would I live differently? Would I live deeper? Would I live with more joy? Would I? Paul, by the way, also says this is your true and proper worship. So, Paul, according to Paul, true and proper worship has nothing to do with singing songs on Sunday and everything to do with are you offering the entirety of your being as a gift of gratitude to the divine who has set you free? You see, this, I mean, this stuff is just absolutely everywhere. You cannot get away from it. You cannot escape. It's everywhere because the New Testament is building off of everything that has come before it. If you're trying to get somebody to a new way of thinking and a new way of living, you start with where they're at and then you help pull them forward. You start with, okay, I see what you're doing. There's a new way to do something. And the reason we're doing this new thing is because it's going to lead to a different place. You see? So each time, if you're trying to convert people to Christianity, you meet them where they're at and then you show them something better. 
Okay, so now let's look at another one here. Um, let's see here. Oh, so if you go to the book of Hebrews, uh, what you see in the book of Hebrews is like there's this major theme. It's called the supremacy of Christ. The book of Hebrews was written for Jewish people who had converted to Christianity. It was also written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So if you put this stuff together, a book that's, that's uh, geared towards Jewish converts to Christianity, a book that's written before 70 AD in the destruction of the temple, and a book that maintains this idea of the supremacy of Christ, what you will see is like a whole bunch of Levitic, like Hebrews doesn't like hint at the Levitical and Exodus language. It like embraces it as a teaching moment to help move people forward. It talks about things like Jesus as the high priest. It talks about things like the new covenant compared to the old. It talks about worship in the earthly tabernacle. It talks about sacrifice. It talks about the blood of sacrifice. It talks about Christ as the ultimate and final sacrifice. The book of Hebrews embraces all of that Levitical language, all of the Exodus in the temple and the sanctuary stuff as a way to say, okay, yeah, that was a thing for time. But now there's something better. There's something new. There's so this is what our ancestors did, but now we're doing it this whole different way. So over and over again, you begin to see and hear this stuff. And when you begin to have this like temple language, you know, there's a sanctuary language in the back of your mind, when you read the scripture, you can't help but kind of see it everywhere. It's just built into the whole thing because it's all building off of that. That's their understanding of how God works and how they know God. So in order to get them to this new place, they have to address that and use that as their comparison, right? And my hope here is through all this stuff is that you guys will begin to see this and it will sink in over time uh, and where it will lead you is like a better understanding of the rest of the text. Because if you can get this, I believe your understanding will be much, much better. You, you, may become, you may find yourself in a position of like questioning some things you know. You may have to rethink some of the things you know. But when you begin to understand this is the basis, what it has done for me is it's given me an appreciation, a deeper sense of appreciation for the Word of God. It's given me a deeper sense of appreciation for books and things I may have neglected or overlooked or not given much attention to. What it's done for me is it's opened the Bible to like this whole new colorful way to see and understand the whole thing. What it's done for me when you get into this and you see all these connections, is it's given me a deeper, richer understanding of who God is and what He is about. Like, you have to understand the shoulders that we're standing on. Okay, now, it's everywhere. What I want to do is I want to take these two trains of thought, and I want to give you a bunch of information, a bunch of scripture, and then I want to ask a couple questions, and like I said, not give you the answers. Okay, so... Um, what I'm going to ask that you do is that you reserve sort of any previous knowledge or judgment on where you think this is going and any sort of previous judgment on what you think the Scripture says about particular issues. And all I want to do is say, I'm, I want to lay out the table here. Here's a bunch of stuff. You know, it's, this, it's a smorgasbord. It's a, it's a buffet of stuff, that I, and I want to ask questions about it. And then I want you to take this and think through this, pray through this this week. Have this discussion in your small group. Um, don't send me emails about how you don't like what I said because all I'm doing is asking questions, okay? Uh, and we got two kind of lines of thinking, okay? So stay with me, be open, and pay attention. All right, so here we go. We're going to start with Hebrews because Hebrews is, is like the most like uh, Levitical looking and sounding. Okay, we're going to start in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. 
For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, uh, would, they have, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Okay, so the author of Hebrews seems to understand that like the sacrificial system wasn't working. Didn't remove the sin. In fact, in verse 4, it says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Which we go, yeah, we, we get that, we understand that. Now, another passage, Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, this is Old Testament. So first, first one's New Testament. This one's Old Testament. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Woo. So God says, I have no pleasure in the blood of these animals. In fact, he seems a bit agitated, doesn't he? Like this meaningless, what are you, what are you doing? Here's a short one. Hosea chapter 6 says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. In fact, uh, this may sound a bit familiar. Jesus quoted this in Matthew chapter 9 where he says this, go and learn what this means. So apparently, when it was said in Hosea, Hosea, they didn't understand it. And Jesus doubles down on it and he tells them, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to, uh, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Okay, so hopefully your head is beginning to like swirl a little bit. Like what is happening? Let me give you one more to add to this confusion. Psalms 50, listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no, just so we're clear who's talking. This is God that's talking. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are forever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. If you remember, we talked about how the ancients understood the gods, that one of the things was you had to feed them, keep them appeased, like so you feed them. This God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because it all belongs to me anyways, and it's ridiculous for you to think that you're going to give me back something of mine to keep me fed. <laughs> that was, I added a little bit in there. Um, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world's mind and all that is in it. Verse 13, do I eat the flesh of bull, bulls or drink the blood of goats? Is this what you think of me? 
that I need this thing. So here's why this is all a bit curious to me, and this is where, you know, maybe you can help me out here and have some good discussion. What it seems like to me is that most people's understanding of the sacrificial system and the reason it came into play and where it came from was because God needed it. God needed it to roll back the sin. God needed it to, to be okay with me. God needed it to appease his, so that he, to push back his wrath, which to me actually sounds a bit more like the ancient gods, the false gods that people were worshiping, that they had to keep sending these things. So when I look at these scriptures, though, what it seems like, it, it, this is saying something different because this God is saying, I have no pleasure in the sacrifices. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I don't need the bull or the goat from your pen. Do you think I eat the flesh of the bulls and drink the blood of the goats? So while the idea that seems to be maintained usually is that the sacrifices were for God, but what the scripture kind of looks like to me, and I could be wrong, but what it looks like is like God is saying like this is not for me. So then here's the question. This is like where you got to like really, people, you know, somebody in first service said, well, how come you, have, like, don't you know? And how come you haven't? And I go, look, you guys now become the research team, right? Like I'm outsourcing the research so you can go and then f collectively figure out the answers and then you can come tell me, right? It's like reverse teaching. It's, it's a proven method of teaching. Um, so here's the question. If, if it's not for God, then who is it for? Because Sort through, like that should take you a while to sort through. Like, what do you do with that? Because based on these passages, it doesn't look like God is saying, yeah, I need it, I need it, I need it. God's saying, no, I don't, what are you doing? It's not for me. It's not, what, if it's not for him, who is it for? And then if you really want to get tricky and you really want to like, if your brain still has capacity after this week to think through all this stuff, like throw in the idea of like, okay, so then what does that mean for the sacrifice of Jesus? And where does that fit into that picture? Because all of a sudden, we're in a whole kind of different place. Okay, so that's random thought train, train of thought one, uh, which should be like more than enough to, to eat for a little while. Uh, let's go to kind of second thought, second train of thought. Okay, and this is some, based off something I, I found this week that I thought was really cool. Fits into our conversation perfectly. Let's go back to John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 14, 1, 14, he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we talked about this. John is using this temple language. Uh, he, he, we've already pointed out, he's talking about this idea of the Word dwelling among us. It connects to this language within the Exodus and God taking up residence in the camp. He's also connecting to the story of creation in the beginning, in the beginning. He's using these phrases. Um, so because John uses this language to connect to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, we see in Exodus, God giving the instructions, here's how I want you to build the sanctuary. Then God takes up residence in the sanctuary. Then we see Leviticus flows out of the book of Exodus where God gives the Levites these instructions about here's how I want you to operate within the sanctuary. And the whole thing is about God trying to shape and form his people into his representatives in the world, right? You're still with me, hopefully. It's kind of like a short recap of everything we've gone through. We talked a couple weeks ago about how there's this connection, this parallel between creation and the sanctuary. 
Okay, and if you remember that, if in case you weren't here, it's really neat. We'll go back through that real quick. You have seven days in creation. Uh, God gives seven instructions to the people on how to build the sanctuary. The seventh day of creation, God creates for six days. The seventh day, he, he rests. He takes Sabbath. The seventh instruction about the tabernacle is all about the Sabbath. You have this um, picture of when God finishes uh, uh, creating, he surveys it. He looks at everything he says, he sees, and he says it's good, and then he blesses it. So he surveys and he blesses. In the story of Moses, he, he finishes the temple. He looks at the work that's been done. He surveys it, and he blesses it. Then you get to the end of the story of, 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 ex, of, of Genesis and creation, and it says God finished his work. You get to the end of the story of, of building the tabernacle, and it says Moses finished his work. So there's all these parallels about creation to the tent of meeting and to how it all works. Um, and the idea is that everything that's happening in and around the tent of meeting isn't just about the tent of meeting, but rather it's pointing to something larger. It's pointing to God's desire for all of creation, which means that when you get into the book of Leviticus, when you have all these instructions for the priest, these instructions are about here's how to work within the order of the world, and here's how I want you to function within the order of the world. Here's how I want you to structure and, and sort through and order things uh, according to how I see fit. Okay, so stay with me, stay with me. What we're trying to do is make these connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the Exodus and Leviticus and everything that God was doing in the sanctuary and the tabernacle with Jesus and the New Testament. The seven days of creation are mirrored in the instructions on how to build the sanctuary. And the idea is God is teaching them this order. Here's a new way to form everything. Here's a new way to live and be in the world. Also, you get to participate in structuring and bringing order to this world. Think about how revolutionary of an idea this would have been for former slaves. People who were only told you were a part of the world the way that we allow you to be. This God shows up and he says, no, no, no. You get to participate in guiding and shaping and forming the world. This is kind of a, a huge deal. This is like, like a forward thinking thing in how people understood the gods. So the tent of meeting... That is a picture, that is a reflection of creation is found in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is where Moses leads the people out of slavery. Uh, God gives them the instructions to build a tent of meeting, and that leads us into the book of Leviticus. Now, in our Easter sermon, Easter sermon, we talked about Jesus as the new Moses. If you remember this, Deuteronomy chapter 18. Okay. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. So God is talking to Moses and he says, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you. So there is somebody who is coming that will be like Moses to the people. Okay, stay with me, stay with me. If you were here for that sermon, what we saw was that several hundred years later, you have Jesus show up onto the scene. He does this whole, like, he lives his life, death, burial, resurrection. You get into Luke chapter 24, and you have this pretty incredible statement of Jesus about uh, who he is talking to some of his people. He says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. So the way that Jesus explains himself to the disciples, he begins his story with Moses. So Jesus, uh, Mo God says to Moses, I'm sending somebody like Moses to the people. Jesus says, if you want to understand me, I have to start my story starting with Moses. What did Moses do? He sets the people free. He leads the exodus. What does Jesus do? He sets the people free and he leads this new and final exodus. Now, here's what I learned this week that I find so, so very fascinating. 
when God sends Moses to bring the people out, you see this phrase over and over again, bring the people out. It's this liberation story, redemption story. Uh, the phrase that's used, here's an example, Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, this phrase, brought out, okay? Uh, it's one particular word in the, in the Hebrew. Uh, I'm going to hope I say it correctly. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but the word is yatsah which means to go or to come out, okay? So this is the word that's used for Exodus, to come out from a place, uh, to go out from a land, come forth from Egypt, the land, the Exodus. So th this wording, the Yatsah, has to do with things that are being brought out. And in this specific instance, anytime they're talking about the people being liberated from slavery from, uh, from Egypt, it's the word Yatsah. Now, what's crazy is, if you back up into Genesis chapter 1, you see this little passage, Genesis 1, 24, says this, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Now this word right here, produce, is the key word, but this is fascinating by the way. God speaks and he says, let the land produce. God didn't say, I'm going to produce the cows. He said, let the land produce. It's a whole other sermon, but it's really fascinating to think that everything that God created, he also gave the ability to create which if you ever doubt your own creativity, just remember that if you are made in the image of God, then you also have the ability to create. Anyways, so let the land produce living creatures. This word right here, produce, is the exact same word that's used in the Exodus. It's the word yatsah. Yatsah. Let the land exodus these living creatures. The living creatures are being brought forth from the land. Right? Like, so in the story of creation in Genesis 1, God is speaking things into existence. New creation is being brought forth, being brought from the land. When he says the land produces these living creatures, it's the very same word. The animals exodus from the land and they form a whole new world. So what you have in the story of Exodus is that Moses is leading the Exodus of the people from Egypt where they will begin to form a whole new world, where God will teach them how to be his kind of people, where God will shape them into who he wants them to be, where he will teach them how to live and be in this world. So there's this connection, again, between the story of Exodus and the story of creation, the idea being that God liberates the people from Egypt, and it's the start of something new. It's the start of this whole new world where they build a tabernacle where God eventually shows up and dwells among his people in the tabernacle. You know, kind of like he did in Genesis where he brought the animals out of the land and he formed this whole earth and this creation and then he formed these people and he put them in the garden and then he showed up and dwelt with his creation. Like, it's all connected. It's all this beautiful story about how God is continually trying to connect and be with his people. So if Moses is the one leading the exodus, you have this creation of the new world, which will eventually lead to the presence of God dwelling among the people. Then what should we expect to happen in the story of Jesus? Maybe it looks a little bit like John 1, 14, where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, stay with me because we're getting, we're heating up a little bit here. Okay, John, uh, Genesis chapter 2. When God is done creating, it says this, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the Sabbath day, he rested from all his work. 
Exodus chapter 40. We just talked about this, but I need you to see it again just for fun. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. And, all, and so Moses finished the work. So when something is finished, when something has been completed, it means what? It means that there's like a whole new thing that has been made right? It, it, there's a whole new creation. God creates, and when he's done creating, when he finishes creating, what you have is a whole, this new world, the, a whole new creation. When Moses is finished building the, the tabernacle, the sanctuary, what do you have? Well, you have this whole new thing, this whole new building, this whole new place, this whole new creation, which, by the way, is a reflection of creation. So when Jesus who is the new Moses, begins to pray in John chapter 17. He says something really interesting. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Also a tie back to creation. Genesis, Exodus, right? See, it's all connected. And you, Jesus actually says something else too. You may be familiar with this line in um, John chapter 19. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head. It is finished. So uh, God finished the work of creation. Moses finished the work of the tabernacle, which represents creation. And then the one who is like Moses, who is Jesus, finished the work. And what is it that's on the other side of a finished work, of somebody completing the work that they were doing? Well, it's something brand new. It's a whole new world. There's a new creation. The work was finished, and the result is something entirely new, which might be why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. <gasps> Are you beginning to see the connections? Like, it's so incredible. It's connected everywhere. Let's, let's, go, let's go one step further. When God finishes his work, there's this new creation, and then he creates man, and he gives man the responsibility to guide and shape and form and work within the creation he has given him. He gives man stewardship of creation. When Moses finishes the tabernacle, you have all these instructions in Leviticus about here's how the priest should function, and here's how the whole thing should work which means they are now given the authority to structure and order the thing that's happening, which means essentially that God, again, has given man responsibility to shape and participate and interact and order and structure the world in particular ways. And then when Jesus finishes work, Paul says anyone in Christ is a new creation. Watch what he says in the very next verse, verse 18. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, which is to say you have a responsibility to guide and shape and maintain and reclaim God's intended reality. Do you see how this is all connected? Like it's so absolutely brilliant. So here's my question. Here's my question. Based on this pattern, all these connections that we see between Jesus and Moses and the temple and creation, based on the insistence of the Bible that you have responsibility for the creation that God has given you, what should your faith in action look like? Because what it looks like 
to me is there's this moment of like a new creation and in Christ you're this new creation and all of this talks about the responsibility that you have to participate in the thing that's happening in the here and now to make a difference for the future for a better you and a better world. Should your faith be more than just belief? And here's the big one. Here's the big one. If everyone lived out their faith the way you do, would the world be a better place? What kind of place would the world be if everybody lived out their faith the way you do? Would it be a place where a bunch of people have a bunch of opinions and think they know best but nothing really changes? Would it be a place where maybe you're open to and accepting and loving the people that come across your path and you understand that like everybody can be your teacher, even the people that are the most frustrating people. Maybe they're in your path so that you can learn and grow so that you can become a better you. It's like, uh, oh, if my kids were watching Evan Almighty. Remember Evan Almighty with uh, Michael Scott? Not Michael Scott, the actor. Uh, and and, and uh, the, the, the God character, uh, Morgan Freeman, he has this, this conversation with his wife, with the, with the woman in the story. And um, he's talking about patience. And she was really struggling, frustrated with her husband. And God said to her, if somebody prays for patience, do you think God removes stuff from their life? Or do you think God gives them the opportunity to practice the discipline of patience? Yeah, 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 yeah. So if somebody's in your life that's a real pain in the pain, maybe there's something there that you need to learn and be a part of. So how does your faith play out in this real life? And if everyone lived their faith like you, would the world be a better place or would we all be hyper cynical and critical and negative? So what it looks like to me is that when there's something, this new creation in Christ, there's a new creation and you have this ability, responsibility to participate in guiding and shaping the world according to the way that God has designed it. What a beautiful thing to be a part of.